welcome to the First Lutheran Church located at 512 South Kale Avenue in Miles City with pastoral services provided by Pastor Steve Rice. The Holy Gospel according to John, the sixth chapter, beginning at the 35th verse. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Then the Jews began to complain about him because he said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. They were saying, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not complain among yourselves. No one can come to me unless drawn by the Father who sent me, and I will raise that person up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from the Father. He has seen the Father. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. Uh, This morning, a few minutes with not the Gospel lesson, uh, but rather the second lesson, the epistle or letter, epistle meaning letter, of Paul to the church that he founded in Ephesus, uh, thus its name, Ephesians, okay, and reflecting upon the church as uh, a community of truth, okay, the church as a community of truth. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul wrote, as Andre has just read, so then, putting away falsehood, let all of us speak the truth, to our neighbors, for we are members of one another. Okay? So with this uh, putting away of falsehood, we are called not in, the, not in a negative sense, but in a positive sense to speak the truth uh, and speaking to our neighbors as being somehow uh, inexorably linked and connected to one another. And I observe there exists encoded, I think, by divine genius in our DNA... Uh, a hunger for, a need for community, okay? I, I fear that in our present circumstance, day and age, that that word community gets applied rather loosely, uh, this community and that community, but I'm going to suggest that the need for community is something that uh, is part of the divine genius that makes us human. And this divine attribute um, has been expressed throughout the ages in so many ways. No man is a rock, an island unto himself. 
United we stand, divided we fall. The ancients, uh, the Babylonians, used the dispersion of community as a method of control. The Jewish diaspora, a biblical reminder that community was deemed essential to survival. The military trains its members into cohesive units by first stripping away individuality and then recreating the identity of the individual, but now seen within the community as such that that unit can accomplish far more than any loosely assembled, uh, disorganized association could do. Being a good neighbor, I think everyone, both spiritual folk and non-spiritual folk, being a good neighbor, it just implies community. Now, among the many identifying features of the church, as I say, is that sense of community. We're one of the earliest or longest standing communities with neighbors recognized to our left and to our right. And I would ask you to recall, as we've discussed before, the very meaning of the word synagogue. Okay, synagogue, where Jewish folk gather together to worship uh, in their community. The word itself means we gather together. Okay, synagogue, we gather together, community. Now, when Paul wrote to the Ephesians, in a scene already decades past and decades old, Um, it was Pontius Pilate in Jesus' trial, such as it was, uh, who puts the question to to Jesus, Jesus, what have you done that has brought you here before me? And we are told that Pilate perceived falsehoods were uh, being put in play, falsehoods being leveled by powerful men within Jesus' own community. Okay, uh, against a relatively powerless man. And this seems to have offended Pilate's sense of Roman justice, uh, recognizing that community has a dark side too, or can have a dark side. And it was Jesus who answers Pilate, uh, my kingdom is not from this world. He goes on, if my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews my own community. But as it is, my kingdom's not from here. Jesus' answer, of course, only seems to have reinforced Pilate's perception that Jesus was being set up. He was being framed. Jesus was visibly to Pilate, not a king. Pilate understood well the politics of kings. Pilate understood strutting monarchs. But for some reason, Within that odd community of Jews that Pilate was to govern, someone wanted this Jesus silenced. So Pilate presses Jesus, asks him again, so you are a king, you speak of a kingdom, you are a king? Jesus answers, you say that I'm a king, but I'll tell you what, for this I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. To testify to the truth. It's important. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Ah, Pilate's response. What is truth? Finally, 
among all the conversations, something that Pilate was genuinely interested in, an educated man. Let's talk about philosophically, what is truth? That fascinates Pilate. And then as now, truth, I'm going to suggest, was probably a rare commodity in political circles. Now, we can apply the truth. We ought to apply the truth. We all should apply the truth. But I want to submit to you, you don't get to create the truth. Okay? We ought to apply truth, but you do not get to create truth. Twenty centuries later, now, here we are, and we benefit from the perspective of time which Pilate did not have in the heat of the moment. Okay? In the heat of the moment. And so we can ask and think about this morning, if Jesus' kingdom was not from this world, how likely do you suppose it would be that Jesus' truth, as he understood it, would also be not from this world? (laughs) If Jesus' kingdom was not from this world, I'm going to submit to you that Jesus understood truth as also beyond this world, it appears to me that it would be more, like, more than likely that if Jesus understood his kingdom from beyond the world, so too would Jesus understand truth as from beyond the world. And this assertion became, I think, over time, a, a, a certainty of the Christian faith. Moreover, Jesus' kingdom, you see, and truth as he understood it, would be based on something beyond. Truth would not be based upon individual opinion, your opinion, my opinion. Social conventions, well, that's just the way we do things. Roman law as administered by Pilate, American law as administered by uh, courts and Congress, or any power or any authority from within the community, but from beyond the community. For Jesus, truth was not, simply was not, from this world. Truth was from and reflective of the Father. Such that when contrary pseudo-truth was encountered, when we return now to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, Paul allowed for a response, but not for the purpose of winning an argument. Okay, Paul allowed for correction, Uh, when error was encountered, uh, countering error with truth, but not for the purpose of winning. I win, you lose in the argument. Because that that leads or implies uh, the sin of egotism, okay? You're egocentric. Paul always sought truth, but he sought truth for the purpose of correcting. The church, the church in Paul's day and in the centuries, first few centuries following, understood that it had to speak the truth in the face of errors, okay? Errors, some innocent, some intentional. Sometimes the church had to address error within the church. And that is precisely why the church wrote the creeds that you know so well, okay? That's why the church formulated the creeds. They explained things. This is true, this is false. And if you are one of our community, this you must believe. Paul wrote, be angry, but do not sin. How do you turn anger into sin? 
Well, first you let the sun go down on your anger. Okay, that makes room for the devil. And then you call people to lives of righteousness. Thieves have to quit stealing. You have to work. You know, uh, use what you do for the building up. Notice how dispassionately Paul sounds uh, in his advice to this Ephesian church to which he's writing. Paul wasn't mad, but he was honest. Paul could readily and easily say no. But Paul would say no in order to be more able and fully to say yes. Paul could always say no to the sin, but he would say yes to the sinner. Yes for the purpose of redeeming, for the purpose of bringing others into the community of the church, the building of the body of Christ. In other words, sometimes one has to oppose in order to support. No to the sin, yes to the sinner. And this was part of the spiritual struggle and the spiritual opportunity that came with being followers of Jesus Christ. We're just different. We are. We always have been. So Jesus told Pilate. So Paul told the Ephesians. And so I tell you, if you're not different, you need to take a hard look at yourself. Paul goes on. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit with which you were marked with a seal for the day of redemption. Put away from you bitterness, wrath, and anger, wrangling, slander, all these things, okay? Be tenderhearted, forgiving, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. For Paul, apostolic correction was not for the purpose of winning, but for the purpose of strengthening, building up. Because again, winning has to do with ego. Winning has to do with pride. There may be a place for that, but not in Christ, not in the church. Winning and pride can become egocentric sins. And the fix for that, the correction, that would further build the church, and that's what Paul was concerned about, was proclamation of forgiveness. The redeeming and redemptive work of Jesus Christ. Therefore, Paul wrote... Be imitators of God. Okay, imitators of God. How would Jesus have handled this? Be imitators of God as beloved children. Live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Well, sometimes, and I don't think there's many in this room who do not know this to be true, sometimes when a healer touches that competent physician knows that the touch is going to cause discomfort, maybe even pain. But they also know that any pain is always associated toward the greater goal of healing. Okay? The goal of healing, therefore, redeems the pain of the touch because it is wholly other-centered. Who among you have not visited a physician? And they say, okay, this is going to be a little bit painful, or this is going to hurt. What physician among you has not known that what they are about to do is going to cause discomfort, even pain, but they do so in order to heal, 
in order to build up. So too, when changes arise, okay, and change always arises in every living thing, the question to ask is, of what purpose, to what end? From where and for what reason does this discomfort arise? If change is ego-driven, as I mentioned, it's always suspect. They have names for people who like to inflict pain on others for the purpose of inflicting pain. But when that pain can be redemptive and restorative, it becomes sanctified. Okay. If change is driven by truth in pursuit of healing, it must be carefully and always carefully considered even if it is painful. It seems that Paul is advocating for a church wherein confession and forgiveness, these are to be both hallmark and key feature. Okay? The church Paul described is not a place where affirmation and acceptance should ever eclipse the truth. The truth, again, back to the truth. Because that would make the church a place of competing egos. So the question Pilate asked, what is truth? For Jesus, truth was that which has been revealed to him by the Father. Heaven knows we have enough institutions where competing egos and competing philosophies exist in the world. We don't need another one. So the church ought not try to compete at that level. We are apart from that. As this congregation seeks its future and discerns its way forward, it must, in the end, decide what is truth. What is truth for us? I, I, I cannot speak to what truth is for them. But for us, what is truth? And then, as a congregation, we must find ways of speaking that truth, expressing that truth, living that truth, first to our neighbors, in the church, around you there. Then to the neighbors beyond the church walls, through our ministries, our preschool, okay, after-school program, visiting the vets. And finally, if it be God's will, to the world. This is called mission and ministry. But it's going to be a mission and a ministry based upon truth. Mission and ministry may look different from place to place, time to time. But if it is authentically mission and ministry by the grace of God and the truth of God, it will be fruitful. By the grace of God, we are who we are. We are neither the people of the first century, nor are we people defined by the agenda of the 21st century. We're not even defined by others within the church. We are defined by the truth. We are defined by the truth. We are defined by a truth, a norm that cannot change if we are to be faithful in our pursuit of the kingdom, in Jesus' words, also not from this world. It is called revealed truth, revelation. This is one of the functions and purposes of Holy Scripture. Sola Scriptura. Okay, scripture alone, one of the four corners of the Reformation from which we arose. For sure we're to be in the world, but we're not to be of the world. 
were meant to be different. Our congregational mission and ministry, varied and widely recognized in this, com- this community and beyond, must always be and remain grounded in the truth. What truth? You don't get to make the truth. You can apply it. What truth? The same truth that Jesus spoke about before Pilate. When we stand before Pilate, when we stand before the authority, we must be willing to speak the truth. For while many confess that God is love, many confess that God is love, the church must also acknowledge that God is also truth. God is love. God is truth. Of Jesus and this truth, I close with a few words from John's Gospel. Okay? You know these, the words that precede this, but for the interest of time. In the beginning was the word, and the word was, okay, John, John, 1, 1. Let me jump down to verse 10. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. Okay? The world's truth and his truth, incompatible. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become the children of God. That's the power of truth. Who were born not of blood or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. Here are the words. And the word became flesh and lived among us, And we have seen his glory, a glory as of the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The law indeed was given through Moses. Talking about Moses and manna and all that. The law indeed was given through Moses. John's next words. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. Jesus Christ has made God known through God's love and God's truth. May we always be a community of truth. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this production of the First Lutheran Church. We welcome you to visit us in person at 512 KL Avenue. You can also find us on Facebook at First Lutheran Church, Miles City, Montana, and email us at flc at midrivers.com.